At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. And we get to hear from you. This week, I'm talking with Dan Pashman, host of the podcast The Sporkful and creator of the brand new pasta shape that has a 12-week waitlist. And gave us the underdog story with a happy ending that we all need so badly right now. That shape is called Cascatelli, and if you haven't already, I recommend you binge listen to Dan's five-part podcast series, Mission Impossible, to ride along on the highs and lows of his three-year quest to design the perfect pasta shape, and then figure out how the heck it gets made. But today, on this podcast, I wanted to hear more from Dan about the behind the scenes of making the story in all of its joyful, nerdy, riveting glory. How do you invent a revolutionary pasta shape and document its story in real time when everything is going on around you? And I wanted to know what's happened since, the big surprises, the peak moments, and if he has any regrets. I was lucky enough to get one precious box of Cascatelli so far as quote-unquote research for this episode, while I wait a few more weeks for the caboodle that I ordered from Savolini to get here. By the way, the customer reviews, all five stars, go big. They say... This pasta replaces all short pastas, and this pasta changed my life, and so nice I bought it thrice. And I have to tell you, they're not wrong. I asked all of you what I should sauce my cascatelli with, and the overwhelming response was ragu, so that's what I did. Specifically, the genius pork shoulder ragu from Jenny Rosenstrach and Andy Ward of the blog Dinner A Love Story. And when I tried it, it was everything that we had been hyped to believe and more. Each noodle is a big curl of ruffles and ridges that catch loads of sauce and make an ideal forkable bite. And while that ragu was perfect and took me back to my favorite local Italian restaurant in Brooklyn, the next morning my toddler added a few noodles that I saved for her to plain yogurt. And you know what? Also good. This truly is a perfect pasta shape for just about any sauce you throw at it. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for some strong feelings from our listeners about what makes or really breaks a pasta shape for them. For now, let's start with just how big and how unexpected Cascatelli's fan club has been. You and your Cascatelli are having a really big couple months um, between Sarah Jessica Parker loving it and being in everything from the New York Times to uh, access Hollywood. Um, so this is <laughs> not a combination not... <laughs> I expected to attain. <laughs> and more and more and more and more like, you know, 
NPR and People Magazine, all these all these places are really excited about your pasta. So this is clearly not just a big deal for the food world. It's a big deal for the world world. Um, but just in case anyone who is listening hasn't heard and doesn't know what I'm talking about, what is your elevator pitch for Cascatelli and Mission Impossible? Oh, geez. I would guess I would say um, I host a podcast called The Sporkful, and uh, I set out to invent a new pasta shape and to tell the story of my quest to invent a new pasta shape in a five-part series on the podcast called Mission Impossible. And the idea was that the series would culminate with the release of the pasta shape as an actual real product that people could buy and eat. And it worked. <laughs> Against all odds, it seems to have worked. <laughs> it it definitely did. And I just have to say um, thank you so much for doing it in this way and for sharing your whole experience developing this pasta over three years um, you know, all the way down to like the nitty gritty details of the, the, you know, how much things cost and like all of the hurdles that you ran into the way that you put it together. Um, it was just so, so meaningful and so much fun to listen to. Um, I happened to binge it while I was, um, finishing a book manuscript and, you know, I would, I would go listen to it on walks to kind of clear my head. And so I was in the middle of this very isolating experience on top of a very, isolating year for everyone. Right. And I just felt like it, um, it really made me feel like I was a part of something again. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm sure it was similar for so many people being, you know, it came out around the year anniversary of the pandemic starting. So, um, I feel like that probably was one of the things that people responded to so much was getting, you know, to, to ride along with you in all of the ups and downs of this, thing that you were so passionate about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we certainly lucked out on the timing. Um, I, you know, originally, I mean, or, you know, when, when we were first looking like we, we had a date that we could launch the whole thing, which was, you know, a year and a half ago still, um, we were like October 2020. That's when we thought we wanted, because October is World Pasta Month. People mm. tend to eat more pasta in the in the colder months. And so we thought, like, perfect, like, oh, maybe it'll be easier to get media coverage. Of, you know, you'll get all those PR pitches. It's World Pasta Month, feature pasta. <laughs> you know, like, those things do help. So we think maybe that'll help us. Um, and then in probably the spring of 2020, two things happened. First, uh, it became clear that the pasta shape was not going to be ready for October mm-hmm. because it was become, getting to be much more difficult than we expected. Even before COVID, maybe in winter 2020, uh, and the other thing was like, oh, there's going to be an election at that time. And mm-hmm. and some of the marketing people I talked to were like, oh, elections don't really affect food media. Like people always eat. And I was like, I don't think this is going to be a normal election. No. Um, I think it would be better to not try to get attention on anything, let alone something fun and joyous um, in the lead up to this particular election. Um, and so we really didn't have a choice anyway. <laughs> the shape wasn't ready. <laughs> But uh, we said, let's push it back. And finally, we got it done in March. And um, I think that it was the right time. I think people were excited for something fun, something upbeat, something, you know, people are now more accustomed, you know, because we made the pasta shape, but like getting it in stores is really difficult. So it was always the plan that it would only be available online at first. But now in code, people are that much more accustomed to like buying things online, even things that they typically would have gone to a store for before COVID, like pasta. Um, mm-hmm. And so 
I just think it was kind of the right right mood and right moment. And so, yeah, we got lucky. But um, it's been exciting. It's been exciting. And I appreciate what you said, that, that you responded to it. And, yeah, I think that um, it's also just been exciting for me since The Shape came out that, like, people are now receiving their packages and they're eating it. And that's, like, I'm a podcast. Like, I'm a media audio professional, really, by trade. Like, I'm not a chef. Like, I know you, you speak to a lot of chefs. And you could probably cook circles around me, Kristen. I'm not, like, an expert on any of that stuff. And I've never, like, really written a real recipe. So no one's ever, like, no one else has ever, like, cooked something I made. And so that's been, like, very... I Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've talked to a couple of, like, recipe developer, cookbook author types, and they're like, yeah, that's one of the coolest things about writing recipes is when other people cook it. And I've never had that experience and didn't expect that it would feel like such a strong connection to all these people who are like, they're cooking this thing that I created, and now it feels like I'm being invited over to dinner in all these people's homes. And um, that's really an incredible thing to like look, open up Instagram and look at stories and see people all over the country and all over the world who are all making this pasta shape with all different sauces. And it's like, it just feels like a very strong connection to people I've never met, which is really cool. Yeah, it's it's a connection in so many different ways. It's the connection of like going along on your very personal journey making it and then, you know, including ways that you might want to cook it and the features about the pasta that you would enjoy, like, um, you know, how it catches the sauce, the forkability, the sauceability, the tooth sinkability. Like we get to actually experience those <laughs> in our mouths and in our bowls and on our forks. I mean, I just actually had the experience last night. I, I had been saving my one box. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I knew that I wanted to, like, you know, like, treat it with care. And because I only got one um, because – and it's not why I wanted to have you on the podcast. I wanted to have you on the podcast because I loved the series and I wanted to hear more about it. But I was also like, hmm, <laughs> maybe I can get a box of Cascatelli. Right. Um <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's it's so funny that it's uh, um, I gave my daughter a box to bring into her teacher for teacher appreciation week. Wow! And I was like, make sure you tell her these things are going for fifty bucks a pop on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I can take some credit for how well it's turned out. I made some good decisions along the way, and I think had a good process. But I also just got lucky. There are certain changes that I made to the shape along the way that. I made out of necessity. Like, I really wanted it to have ruffles, and I really wanted it to have a tube. And what I learned as I started trying to do that is that that's impossible. Um, you can, you know, you make pasta by extruding dough through a die, which is like the mold. Um, it works just like people remember the Play-Doh factory. You push the dough through the mm -hmm. thing, and it comes out a certain shape. That's how you make pasta, basically. But when you want to make a pasta shape, if the movement required to create the ruffles as the dough goes through the die would crush the tube. So they said, you can't do that. I said, ah. So, so I started trying to find all these, all, all these different ways to combine ruffles in a tube. And I said, oh, maybe, maybe it's just a half tube. Like, it's so it's open on one side. Maybe that could work. We thought that could work. Even that couldn't work. The breakthrough was taking the ruffles. Originally, the ruffles were on along the edges of the noodle, like the way lasagna mm -hmm. has ruffles down the edges. It was like that. But what we did is, essentially, like, imagine if you had a piece of lasagna and you cut the ruffles off and then folded them in and like stuck them on so they were like perpendicular to the flat part so they're at, at an mm -hmm. intersection that made it possible to get the half tube component and the ruffle component and that that was all i was trying to do was just like how do i get ruffles in here because i love i love ruffles and i think they're <laughs> underutilized in pasta shapes they don't get they're not used there's a million tubes out there there's a million shapes with ridges there's a million curly curvy ones but there's not enough ruffles so 
I had to get the ruffles in there, and that's how we got them in. But moving the ruffles so that they were perpendicular to the flat strip had these other benefits that I didn't know it would have. So, for instance, the, the, the spot where the ruffle strip meets the main strip is a right angle. There are very few right angles in pasta shape, so that creates resistance to the bite from all directions. Like It's like an I-beam. It creates a little spot where the shape cooks ever so slightly less, so you have a little bit of extra texture, tooth sinkability, as I call it. And then the other big thing is that you have these two ruffle strips right next to each other, both sort of sticking up from the main strip. So the space in between them gathers so much sauce. I call it the sauce trough. And so mm -hmm. much sauce gets up in there. And and the, because you have ruffles, they sort of act as teeth. They once So sauce can get in. The thing is like it's like a Venus flytrap. The sauce can get in, but it can't get out. And um, so I don't even really feel bashful bragging about how good it is because I feel like I stumbled. I, I'm not at all embarrassed to say that I stumbled into so many of those attributes <laughs> and just got lucky. So I'm as surprised as anyone that it works as well as it does. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't have gotten that lucky if you hadn't been both studying and obsessing over this for all the years that you were making it and all the years before it that you were thinking about, you know, how much you you know, loved certain attributes and hated certain attributes of pasta. Yeah, and that that's sort of my personality in general. I'm sort of like very detail-oriented, obsessive person and kind of always noticing small things that maybe other people wouldn't have noticed. And, and that was so much like the root of the sporkful when I started the podcast 11 years ago. So much of it was always about like obsessing about the tiniest details of basic foods. Um, and that's something I've always mm -hmm. done and always had fun doing. And so, yeah, part of this was to sort of like try to harness that passion in a way that might be useful, um, more useful than it's been. <laughs> um, you know, but one of the reactions that I've always gotten over the years to this Borkful podcast, when we, when I do those segments where we kind of obsess in great detail about the tiny details of a food is that people will say, I never knew I had such strong opinions about that. And I love getting that reaction. It's a very rewarding reaction because it means that a person, it means that you've learned something about yourself and about the food and that it's changed your relationship with that food. Now you will think about it differently forever. Um, and and I, I was hopeful that if we did this big exploration of pasta shapes, that that would be one of the reactions. Maybe for you, Kristen, because you are, you know, you work in the world of food and very knowledgeable and I'm a generally obsessive eater. So I've thought a lot about pasta shapes, but I think most average people even people who love food and love pasta haven't thought that much. You, you might know the five or 10 or 20 shapes that you eat regularly at the supermarket or at a few restaurants. Um, but how much time have you really spent thinking about why some are better than others, which ones you like, why you like them, how they might be improved, what other shapes are out there that you haven't sought out because they aren't easily available. And when you start to think about that, if you love to eat pasta the way I do, you will very quickly become obsessed and want to know more and want to try more and want to think like, well, maybe, maybe spaghetti's not that great. Maybe this shape actually could be improved, you know, and, and you just get into it from there. And no matter how much you've thought about loving pasta and, and which types of pasta you love, very, very few of us have ever thought about how they get made. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, before I started this project, we mostly would just eat standard supermarket pasta in our family, in my house. And once in a while, if I was at a specialty store, I would pick up a bag of some, you know, something special, Italian pasta, something a little fancy. 
Or my mom would come to visit, and that would be like a common present she would bring, you know, high-end pasta. Um, and so I was aware of the idea, like, for instance, that, that there's such this, that there's this thing called bronze dye, pasta made with a bronze dye. You know, the supermarket pasta is made with a Teflon dye. I didn't, I didn't know that before, but I, I knew there was a difference. I could tell that the supermarket pasta was, like, smooth and yellow, and the more upscale Italian pasta was rough and chalky. And I knew that that's, that was from a bronze dye. I knew that much. But I hadn't put that much thought into it. And then as I learned more about it, I came to understand that, like, when, the, when it's made with a bronze dye, you get a rougher surface, which makes it more tactile. It increases surface area, so it increases, sauce, as I call it, sauceability. So sauce adheres better. But it's also just generally, like, the bronze dye thing does cause some qualitative improvement but there's also just a correlation because if you're making pasta with a Teflon dye, it means you're, it means that you're focused on maximizing cost. You, you're, you're trying to make as much pasta as quickly as possible to make it as cheaply as possible. If you're using a bronze dye, it means like you're caring a little bit more about quality. I'm trying to find a balance between cost and quality. So I wanted to make it with a bronze dye. And since, since our pasta came out, one of the other fun reactions has been that a lot of people who are like me or like I mostly buy supermarket pasta. I never really thought about it. I never thought about spending an extra couple of dollars and I will never, ever go back hmm. They're like, mm -hmm. because they're like, I never knew what a difference it was. I didn't realize how much I was missing. I'll only buy bronze dye pasta from now on. And, um, and that's also cool because like, you know, I think for not for everyone, but for a lot of people, a higher quality pasta is an affordable luxury. Um, you know, you can you can buy high end pasta and still feed a family of four for ten dollars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a jar of sauce and a, and a bag of pasta. And so, to me, that's fun. Like, it's fun to expose people to like an affordable luxury that will make you gain a new appreciation for this food that you thought you knew. Hey, are you enjoying this chat with Dan as much as I did? If so, head to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other conversations like this one. Like my recent interview with Petra Paredes of Petey's Pie Company about the untraditional ingredients that make her key lime meringue pie so memorable and so hard to mess up. In the second half of the episode, we will talk about how Dan was also capturing a story alongside all of this, puzzle piecing the story together and any regrets he might have. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. A lot of what was so um, gripping about Mission Impossible was having you confront all of these big decisions all along the way. Um, everything from all the decisions of making the shape to the partner that you were going to work with to the packaging to the name, all of that. 
now with a little bit of distance from the launch and from the whole experience, are there any decisions that you would have done differently in hindsight? Anything I would have done? I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty happy with the way that it turned out, you know, and, you know, sure, it would be nice in retrospect to have had it take not not all of three years and not be quite so stressful. Um it, maybe a few fewer sleepless nights would have been nice. But, I mean, you know, like I said, I started off wanting to tell a story for the podcast. And I, uh, as a storyteller, I knew setting out, like, oh, well, I, I want something. I kind of want a few things to go wrong. Because mm-hmm. if nothing goes wrong, it's not an interesting story. So I want a few things to go wrong to create drama and tension. Mm-hmm. And so things started going wrong, and I was like, great. You know, <laughs> got that. This is going to be great when I go to tell the story. Thank God this whole thing's a train wreck right now. Um, and, and, but then, then after a few of those moments, and after then we got to like a half dozen of those moments, I was like, okay, got enough of those. You know? <laughs> Check that box. Don't need any more train wrecks. No more major obst- unforeseen obstacles. No more sleepless nights. No more moments where I'm at the end of my rope. We've got all that. Let's just finish the shape and release this thing already. And then COVID hit, mm-hmm. you know, and then it was like this whole all, all new obstacle. Now, now the bronze for my bronze die. Well, my die maker couldn't get any bronze. And I could, no one in the pasta industry had time for me because dried pasta sales increased 40% in nine weeks. Mm-hmm. Remember, in the early part of the pandemic, people were kind of hoarding food. They wanted pasta because it was cheap and it was shelf stable. So you could reduce trips to the store. And... um and so all the people that I was working with to try to make this happen, suddenly, you know, we're dealing with their own issues, you know. Um, and so <laughs> that was a whole new obstacle. Right, right at the moment I thought I didn't need any more obstacles came the biggest obstacle. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people have asked you about what it was like to make the shape, but making the story all alongside for three plus years how did that all come together? Were you just kind of recording everything as it happened and just, you know, patching it all together at the end, editing it into a story? Or were you kind of making episodes along the way and making decisions along the way based on the story? Yeah, I mean, that was certainly one of the big challenges. It would have been one thing to try to do a epic five-part podcast series or make a pasta shape. Um, but it was always complicated by trying to do both because at certain, at certain junctures... You know, one one course of action is better for one of those goals, but not, but it's bad for the other. Um, and so, um, it was certainly a challenge. I was, yes, I was recording. I didn't record every single minute, you know, of of the process, or you know, or my poor producer Emma Morgenstern, shout out to Emma, would have gone insane. <laughs> um, but um, but yes, recording a lot. You know, certainly. We, I mean, we, the whole series, when all is said and done, is probably about three hours long in five mm-hmm. episodes. And I would say, I mean, from those three hours, I mean, there's probably 300 hours of tape. Mm-hmm. Oh my um, gosh! You know, so so we we assembled parts one and two a year and a half before they came out, at least like in a first draft format, mm-hmm. knowing they would change. But I was eager to put something together and to share with other people in at Stitcher, at our you know our colleagues in the audio production world. And just to get some feedback to see like what's working, because I wanted that feedback to sort of guide us as we carried on. 
And so we got some helpful feedback about like, here's what we like about this, here's what's not working. And so we put those changes into parts one and two, but then also kind of used that, that helped us to be more effective as we made parts three, four, and five, because then we kind of, it gave us, it gave us a, a target and sort of a creative direction. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, like it's not, it's not interesting to be like, I'm going to go to North Dakota, as I did in part one, I'm going to go to North Dakota to the pasta lab to learn all about the Durham wheat that is in most pasta sold in America. Um, and then learn five interesting things and set out from North Dakota. And then you never hear any of those interesting things come back to the story. Then it's like, well, why did that, why did he do that? Why did he go to North Dakota? Then he didn't learn anything useful. So we had to take the like, 30 interesting things I learned in North Dakota and then put the focus on the three things that ended up being most crucial as I progressed because otherwise it wouldn't be interesting. That made it more interesting to be like, oh, that's why he learned that because, you know, he, now we see why how, where that came in handy because it's paying off at the end. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, was there a lot of like storyboarding and like how do you get those pieces to all fit together and, you know, as you're moving them around over and over? It was certainly a lot of trial and error. And and every one of these episodes was put through a more rigorous editorial process than we're able to do for a typical weekly episode. Um, you know, but, but um, you know, I'm lucky to have two great producers who work full-time on The Sporkful, Emma and Andres O'Hara. And then we have our editor, Tracy Samuelson, who was, you know, huge and other folks at Stitcher who helped with the, the engineering and who sat in on edits and gave feedback. So, you know, each one of these episodes was edited like three times, which is not normal for us. I mean, we're a weekly show. We're usually crank- cranking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was, I mean, I've never done anything like this. I've never done a multi-part story myself in my, whatever, 20 years of as an audio producer. Um, and so that was part of why I wanted to do it. You know, like I, I, you know, back in 2015 when like Alex Bloomberg was doing Startup and there was the Planet Money t-shirt episode and these sort of long form stories about like launching a product, I was like, someday I want to do my version of that. You know, what would my version of that be? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of from that creative inspiration that that it all started. And so it was fun. It was a lot of fun, actually. I mean, it was very, very hard work and intense. But, um, and maybe I'm just looking back on it too fondly. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like it was a creative challenge that I wanted to take on. I wanted to see if I could do it and if we as a team could do it. Um, and what what would our ver- what would the Sporkful's version of one of those big podcasting series be? What would it sound like, and how could we put our own stamp on that style? Um, and after having listened to a lot of other people do it really well and learning from them, like how could I incorporate those lessons into a Sporkful series? With the Cascatelli, when people do get their hands on it. What are some of the ways that you have been enjoying cooking with it lately? and is it any different from how you had designed it to be? It's not different from how I designed it because I, I want I, I, I the change is just that I'm trying it in more and more different ways, um, which has been a lot of fun. I I I I personally think that the idea that like to every sauce there is a shape and vice versa is kind of overdone. I think it would be impossible to make a shape that goes well with every conceivable preparation but I wanted to make a pasta shape that would go well with 75% of the sauces out there. That was my goal. Um, and I thought that, I thought that, you know, a truly great shape should do that. Um, and so I, we've been eating it in our household. I mean, certainly with meat sauce or ragu, um, with uh, pesto and cheese, with anything thick. 
I love it with Andrea Wynn's Mapo Tofu Spaghetti from the New York Times, which is such a fantastic recipe. The sauce is nice and thick, and it's got the little bits of meat that get stuck in the ruffles. That's excellent. My wife, Janie, made a really good mac and cheese with uh, smoked Gouda and Fontina. And we did it in the in the saucepan and then put it into the baking sheet and put on breadcrumbs and just broiled it for a couple minutes. I'm not a fan of baked mac and cheese because I think it dries out. But I do I like the saucepan mac and cheese because it's gooier. But I do like the move of of broiling it for a couple of minutes to get the crispy breadcrumb topping. Um, that's fantastic. Wow. And the ruffles probably crisp a little bit yeah, too. Yeah, the ruffles get crispy and you, the ruffles the ruffles pick up the breadcrumbs beautifully. So then you get the ruffles coated with breadcrumbs, and then it's like double texture. Wow. Now I wish I had another box. Mine's going to be a while, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And now, from our listeners, some feelings on pasta shapes. Hi, I'm Janet, and I really don't like you, silly. It feels weird in your mouth. It just kind of bounces around in there. Really, the only good thing about it is the classic New Yorker cartoon when the rigatoni is talking on the phone and says, You silly, you crazy bastard, how are you? I'm Anna. I am the senior food stylist at Food 52, and my least favorite pasta shape is elbow macaroni. It is too small. It doesn't have any ridges for sauce. It doesn't hold any sauce. It is always overcooked, and I think it doesn't belong in any dish except for maybe macaroni and cheese. Thanks for listening, and my thanks to Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast and creator of Cascapelli, available on Spolini.com. That is S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. Or you can also stock up on lots of small batch pastas like hemp radiators and porcini trumpets. And then have a very nice surprise at your door in about 12 weeks. Our show is put together by Coral Lee with support from Emily Hanahan. If you have a tip on a genius recipe or a new genius ingredient like cascatelli, I would always love to hear from you at genius at food52.com. And if you like the genius recipe tapes, do take a sec to rate, review, subscribe, or tell your mom if you haven't already. It really does help us out. Talk to you soon.